This morning our scripture text is from Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 20. This is the telling of the Ten Commandments. And frankly, there's enough in this, in this text that you could take, and many sermons have done, uh, one commandment at a time. And so this morning what we'll be doing is looking at the law of the whole, as a whole. Uh, the purpose of the law for the life of God's people, for Israel, what it was God was doing when he gave them the law. So if you would turn, if you have a, a Bible with you, to Exodus 20. Again, we're reading verses 1 through 20. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I've noticed something um, sort of strange as a, as a parent, uh, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, either as a parent or as a kid. Um, it's, it's that my kids are not better off if I let them do anything that they want. It might, might seem obvious, but it works itself out in all of these really sort of small and simple ways. For example, if my daughter asks, she's, she's five, the one entering kindergarten, if she asks at the beginning of a day, what do we do today? What should I do today? And I say, anything. You can do whatever you want. That day is, is not necessarily going to be a, a good day. It's not necessarily a great, joyful, fun, happy day. She's more likely to be bored and, and whiny than if I were to give her a few options and say, well, today we could read a book, we could color, or we could build something with Legos. Why don't we pick one of those? That day will go, will go much better. She thrives within some sort of structure and some sort of guidance. Because left to themselves, uh, kids will enslave themselves. 
They will enslave themselves with horrible eating habits, with really, really bad sleeping schedules, or with endless hours at the TV or or perhaps playing video games or something like that. If left completely alone, kids literally will not find out or learn how to relate to other people. They'll need some sort of some sort of guidance. They need an environment in which they can actually be free to thrive and to live. They need boundaries because they do not yet know what it is that will hurt them in the long term versus what it is that will actually help them in the long term. And our world, the one that we live in today, it's one that values freedom. It values freedom to the nth degree. Total freedom. But a problem will arise when we elevate freedom from everything to the highest value, to the highest good. And this would be called absolute negative freedom. When the highest value is that we're freed from everything. That's absolute negative freedom. Freedom from anything and everything. No one can tell you what to do, how you're supposed to act, what you should, what you should live like. And this will lead to a society in which, as James Taylor put it, the only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. The only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. But is such a framework actually tenable? Is it even truly freedom? Or put differently, does, does real freedom actually have trajectory? Does it actually have a direction? Does it have an end? Does real and true freedom have a destination? So is there such thing as, as freedom to something in addition to freedom from something? Now in Exodus, what we've read, this, at this point in the story, Exodus is, is telling the story of Israel's development as, as a nation. Uh, it begins in difficulty, right? In chapter 1, with Israel in slavery uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, but Moses is quickly introduced and he's, he's pulled out of the water of the Nile River. And that whole, that whole scene there, there's some really clear imagery of, of, a, of birth. This sort of birth, of birth of Moses and then the drawing him out of the waters of the Nile. Even the birth of this nation we can see coming, the people of Israel. And in uh, chapter 4, uh, God calls Israel, his firstborn son specifically, and then tells Moses that when he goes to confront Pharaoh, that he warns that the firstborn of, of Egypt will die, but the firstborn of God, Israel, will actually be saved. So Pharaoh finally sent Israel away, right? He, he, he sent them out of Egypt, actually, out of slavery to go. Uh, but then he changed his mind when the, when the Israelites got to the Red Sea, and, and Pharaoh chases them down again to reclaim them uh, for his own. And at that point in the story, God does the miraculous, and he parts the Red Sea for Israel and collapses it back upon the Egyptian army. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul calls that event in Israel's history their baptism. That's the time when Israel was baptized into Moses, Paul says. And that baptism, it saved Israel from from Egypt, uh, from their armies, and it it marked them as a saved people. It marked them as Yahweh's saved people. They'd been baptized by the Red Sea. And in this text, in in Exodus chapter 20, this nation is now brought to Mount Sinai for for a ceremony. And this ceremony is is almost like a a coming-of-age type of ceremony. These people this nation of Israel, they've been born. They're the firstborn of God. They've been baptized. 
in the crossing of the Red Sea. And here they all are called to this mountain for this, this ceremonial event, sort of this coming of age, this formalization of Israel and their, their relationship that they would have with God. And that's really what took place on Mount Sinai here in Exodus 20. And in the following chapters, which uncover the rest of the law. And it might not be so obvious to, to us as contemporary readers today, but God was establishing a covenant with his people, and that was very obvious to the nation of Israel. And this was specifically a suzerain vassal covenant. Now, the suzerain vassal agreement, it was, it was a commonly used treaty in the ancient Near East. It would be used between uh, nations who were uh, of unequal size and strength. Some, some nation was large and powerful, and they would take over this vassal nation, and they would form some sort of treaty agreement, which was called the suzerain vassal agreement. So the king of this larger nation, the suzerain nation, would take over all of the formal ownership of the, of the land and the production of this smaller nation. The suzerain would also receive some sort of, of regular payment, like a tribute that would be given. They would also be able to call on the vassal to assist them uh, in, in, a, in a war or to come to their, their defense. So militarily, they would receive their, their support as well. But the vassal, they received benefits as well from being in this sort of relationship. And for one, they weren't simply just wiped out as a nation, right? They got to live on. They got to continue to exist with even some of their own uh, governing traditions and and policies. And they also received protection from the larger army of the suzerain nation. So if someone attacked them, that larger, larger king had an obligation to go out and to protect the vassal. They would even receive oftentimes some sort of land grant and be guaranteed to own, own something. But the linchpin for these sorts of treaties to operate correctly was was faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. These sorts of treaties were meant to establish the sort of relationship that that you would have within a family, the sort of responsibility and trust that would exist within a, a family sort of relationship. And the more closely related two people were, the more responsibility you had to that person, the more trust there was to that person. And so these suzerain vassal treaties, they were meant to set up, to establish a relationship where two parties would covenant with one another to treat each other as if they were family, to have that sort of responsibility and trust with one another. So remember then that God had called Israel his firstborn. That's the sort of familial relationship being set up, one of the closest sort of bonds that you can have with great responsibility required, great faithfulness required. And that's what this whole thing was. This whole event of the giving of the law. It was a covenant that would establish the nature of the relationship that Israel would have with her God. And this law, this covenant, it was really a gift of grace. It was a gift of love. And we can can see that just by the opening words that God speaks. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. God had freed these people, but he didn't just free them from slavery. He freed them to something better, to a new life. He didn't just deliver from, he also delivered to. Imagine the situation if some two million people, some two million Israelites were just freed from Egypt, freed from slavery. They just wander out. Two million people are left in the wilderness with nowhere to go. 
with no direction. They're not freed to anything. They were simply freed from everything. Imagine the sort of chaos that would ensue there. No one to, to lead. There's no, no rule or, or governing going on. It's not hard to imagine self-interest taking over. As what happens whenever there's a group of people, some sort of dominance hierarchy would be set up there within, within those people. And if it was left unchecked, people would be used. People would be abused. People would certainly even be killed. And Israel would find herself enslaved once again, this time to herself. So God provided order. God is one who brings order out of chaos. And so he gave them a law that would govern them. And it was a unique law. It's a unique law because it's given distinctly to this people, to God's people. And it was only for God's people. And when God gave his law then to Israel, it was not simply so that they could live in such a way that others would would see them and want to copy them and sort of live the same sort of life. It wasn't just the best example of how you should live life on this, this earth. In other words, God didn't give Israel the law primarily because he figured, man, man, it looks really hard to live life down there as a human, so let me just give you this so you can, you can see a better way to do it. That was not the primary reason for the law. The primary motivation, the primary background for God's giving of this law was redeeming love of his own. He had freed these people. And it was for freedom that they'd been set free. He wanted them to be able to continue to live in freedom together. And so God gave them the law so they could do so. People are only free in the right environment. And this is, this is true of anything, right? A fish is only free in the confines of the water. A bird is free in the air. God's people would only remain free by living within his law. In the proper element, with the proper way of relating to one another and relating to the God who had saved them. So they did not need to destroy themselves or harm themselves by reenacting the the oppressive rule of the Egyptians or of the Canaanites. This new way that God gave, this was the way to live at peace with God and with one another. And doing so, it would require each person to take this law to heart on an individual level, on an individual basis. What's interesting about the Ten Commandments is that they're given in the second person singular. Now, in English, we only have the second person singular and plural is, is you. If I'm talking to just you, it's you. If I'm talking to all of you, I still say you. But in Hebrew, there's two different words. And, and this is the singular version. So each person is to read this law for themselves. Each individual needs to hear this law. And that's how God speaks it. To you as an individual, you shall honor your father and mother. You will not kill. You will not lie. You will have no other God before me. You, as an individual person, you must take this law to heart. Each person must do this. And if each person would do that, then Israel would become a healthy, even a stabilizing sort of environment, sort of community. It would be a light to the nations. Because who wouldn't want to live 
in a community where authorities are respected and where they lead honorably? Who wouldn't want to be in a place where everyone is trustworthy and honest? Who wouldn't want to be somewhere where there's no need to fear deceit or treachery from others? No need to fear theft because everyone has enough what they needed? Who wouldn't want to live in a place where each person saw themselves as an integral part of their community in which they recognized how their own individual personal actions had a widespread impact on the rest of the group? Who wouldn't want to live somewhere where they honored this covenant faithfully? And this is true for us as well. How wonderful would our world be if we kept this covenant perfectly with God? How wonderful even would just our own church community be if we kept this covenant perfectly as individuals, obeyed all of God's law to its fullest extent? Unfortunately, we are just like Israel. And they failed regularly. They didn't keep perfect covenant faithfulness that they were required to, not even close. And neither do we. So often we are just like Israel who had said, man, why don't we go back to Egypt? Like we could sit around pots and eat meat. At least we had water there. At least there were graves even there for us. Sometimes we prefer slavery to the freedom that God has given, to the thing that God has freed us to. Our hearts are like the little kid who can't see what's truly good for him, who refuses to go to sleep, who only eats junk food. We're like addicts who return to the vice, even as it kills us. When we've been offended or hurt by someone it can feel good to nurse that pain within us to dwell on it we might find it satisfying to sort of brood over it for a while there's a certain vigor in fanning the flame of our own anger it feels like power it feels something like control that quickly grows to hatred and and slander which again the release of that hatred is is somewhat satisfying to us it's like a rush Sort of like a drug to just vent angrily, to spew out those sort of hateful words, and then we think, ah, I, sh- I showed them, didn't I? Show them how I really feel. But we're not released from our anger or from hatred by expressing it. It continues to enslave us. It dominates our mind. We can't even think about that person or that, that place, maybe, or that event without our chests involuntarily just tightening up within us. What we thought we wanted ends up enslaving us. When we tell lies or, or half-truths, or we exaggerate and take credit that's not ours, we, we undermine other people or prop ourselves up. These are all just in different places on the same spectrum. They're, they're not different in kind. This is all of it deceit, right? And we do so, we deceive in order to protect ourselves, to make ourselves feel important or maybe seem impressive and sometimes the lies even work but inevitably they are too much to keep up with we'll worry that people can see through our our sort of thinly failed fabrications we worry if people might find out someday who we really are and so the deceit compounds and it needs to be pushed deeper and deeper until we might actually even 
convince ourselves that the lie is the truth. But we become slaves to deceit. It runs us. It determines uh, what we will say or how we must react to certain people. And what we thought we wanted, what we thought might free us in the moment, that thing ends up enslaving us. And we could do this with any of the Ten Commandments. We break any of the Ten Commandments, it will enslave you. So if we think freedom means that, that, do, that we can do anything that we want, we might find ourselves lustfully pursuing people for pleasure, whether physically or, or virtually on a screen, but those pursuits won't fulfill. They'll leave us broken, enslaved by lustful thoughts, and unable to relate to other people as humans. Or we'll find ourselves acquiring more and more stuff by any means necessary, hoping to find some sort of freedom and joy in our things. But we pursue that desire for more and, and we'll never be satisfied. And you'll become enslaved by the things that you own. The need to use them, the need to maintain them, or the need to simply acquire more of them. It won't work to just keep some of God's law and still have your freedom. We will not live truly free lives uh, by keeping most of God's law for our life. The law was given as a whole, and it's to be taken as a whole. This law, it shows how to live the free life in relation to God and to others. So breaking only one part of it negates that freedom because any single part of it broken will enslave you. So this is why James wrote in James chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And we are each of us lawbreakers. We are each of us people who would return to our bondage and slavery. We did not keep covenant faithfulness with our God. There is only one who did not return to slavery. There's only one who did keep perfect covenant faithfulness. There's only one who lived the perfectly free life, one who lived out God's vision for his people, how to relate to God and to others. And in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. And Jesus fulfilled the whole law. He did not abolish it. He didn't just get rid of it, nullify it, toss it away. He fulfilled it and he did it perfectly. To fulfill it means to bring to completion to realize something or to achieve something. And that's what he did. He achieved it. He accomplished it. He embodied a full realization of what it looks like for the law of God to be lived out perfectly. And he lived out the purpose of the law by relating to God and to others perfectly. And when asked what the greatest of the commandments was, remember Jesus' reply. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
And indeed, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, they describe how we relate to God, how we love our God. And the remaining six commandments, they explain how we relate to others, how we love our neighbor. The entire law is summarized in love for God and for neighbor. So it's fulfilled by relating properly in love to both God and to others. And he did it perfectly. Jesus loved God perfectly and had perfect union with him, loved him to the point that he obeyed his father's will, even as it led to his own death. And he loves you perfectly. He loves you so fully that he willingly subjected himself to the agony of the cross. And he did this because he knew we could never keep the law. We would never be reconciled. That is, we would never have a restored or amended relationship with God again on our own. And since we would not keep it, he did it on our behalf. So what does the law mean then for for you and for me today? Well, we must not reduce the law to simple guidelines. This is not simply a, a good way for humanity to live. The primary purpose of the law is not to make the U.S. run smoothly as a society or any place to simply run smoothly as a society. Again, the law is uniquely for God's people. Now, it does have benefit for the rest of the world, but that's not its primary function. John Calvin argued that the primary function of the law for the Christian is to guide us in the appropriate way to live out gratitude to God for the saving work that he has done within us. It's an act of of gratitude to fulfill the law, to live out the law. The purpose of it now for you is gratitude. Hear what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But the spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we are God's children, then we are God's heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If your faith is in Christ alone and the saving work that he's done, in his his life, in his death, in his resurrection and his ascension, then you're a co-heir. You live under his rule. You live under his banner. And so you get to live in right relationship with God and he's shown us how and he's given you his spirit to equip you to do so. It is only when you see that Christ has fulfilled the law for you that you will begin to live it out in gratitude. It's only when you see that Christ has already fulfilled the law. He's already achieved the law on your behalf. Only when we see that will we begin to live in accordance with the law out of gratitude to God. It's only when we have the Spirit of Christ within us that we will no longer fear the law as something that condemns us, something that binds us. The law is not a means for controlling God or for controlling others or even for controlling our own fate. It no longer condemns, but in the hands of Christ, the law is a charter for your freedom. 
God's people are those who do not live under the curse of false gods who will never be satisfied by anything that you do. We don't live under the curse of, of fear of lacking or of chaos or the curse of hate or lust, the curse of a desire for more or, or deceit or envy. Freedom is not found simply when all rules and authority have been overthrown. True freedom is not found uh, when we can do anything that we want. It has a direction. It has a trajectory. True freedom is toward something. And there may yet be areas of your own life that are still caught up in sin. And so may you find that Christ does not wield the law in order to condemn you. He completed the law to free you. And so living in accordance with God's law is the way that we give thanks to him for that freedom. When we live the free life, our lives will bear witness to our world that that God is still present. He is still at work in this world through his people. And so may those who are bound in slavery to sin see us live joyfully. May they see lives that are truly free. And may we then introduce them to the giver of that freedom, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise and thanks be to God, our Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our good and great God, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks for your law, just as the psalmist did. It is good for us. Your law is is sweet to us, not because it is something that we are capable of of doing perfectly or accomplishing on our own. We can't. We have not. But we thank you for it, God, because in Jesus you have fulfilled it. You have completed it. You've achieved it and given us his righteousness as our own. And so, Holy Spirit, would you empower your people to live lives of gratitude, to continue living within that that covenant offering ourselves back to you because that is how we'll be truly free. All this we pray through the name of your Son. Amen.